Hi, I'm Carla Marie Sweet, and you are listening to the Playmakers Podcast, a new podcast by Box of Tricks Theatre Company that is all about platforming creative conversations with theatre makers from all parts of the industry. After a short hiatus, we are back for the second half of season one. And this episode's guest is the wonderful Lauren Nicole Mays. Lauren is a writer, actor, dancer, and incredibly accomplished dance teacher. She attended Italia Conti Academy of Theatre Arts and was awarded the Tracy Bennett Most Promising Actress Award when she graduated. She's since appeared in TV shows including The Bay and Coronation Street and is a Monologue Slam UK winner. As a writer, she was an associate artist at Oldham Coliseum and an Arvin Scholarship awardee. Lauren was chosen as a finalist for the Sky Studios and Box of Tricks Screenplay Award for her play Baby Nun XO, and the idea is now being developed for television. In this conversation, we talk, amongst other things, about her experience of taking a play to Edinburgh Fringe last year. It's an honest conversation, exploring the highs and lows, as well as offering advice to those planning on following in her footsteps. As with all episodes of the Playmakers podcast, this conversation is pretty raw, uncut and unfiltered. So expect to hear the odd swear word that hasn't been beeped and some discussions around sensitive topics. Okay, without further ado, here's Lauren Nicole Mays. I love being part of a team Mm. and I am quite a competitive person and I'm not shy to say that um but I don't think you should be I think it's it's a funny thing when you're a woman and you're competitive because when you're a man and you're competitive it's really like lauded and praised isn't it but when you're a woman it's yeah, considered sure. really like a negative thing. exactly yeah so I'm a competitive person but I do like being part of a team mm. and the collaborative process is is just I think very different to what you get I'd say in television Mm. not that it's not collaborative in television but it's different and that live response it's something and it sounds a bit wanky um I can swear right yeah okay cool (laughs) it sounds a bit wanky but it's like a a live a live reaction that I don't know it's a completely different buzz it's like a different hit that I get in terms of acting Mm. for writing I would say I did try actually writing a screenplay as my first thing that I'd ever written. And I ended up using that idea, which was Love Mum, to write Baby Nun. Um, And I decided that film wasn't the right kind of medium for it because I didn't feel free. What is that noise? It's like, is it building? It's him outside, isn't it? So we, w- we shan't be using this room again for, uh, for podcasting. <laughs> the building Hopefully works. it won't pick up, oh. but... <laughs> oh, gosh. Right, okay. Listeners, if you can hear a tapping, a persistent tapping throughout <laughs> this, you haven't got really bad tinnitus. It is a garage across the road, and I can't shout at him because it's we literally can't get rid his of job. It. We can't get rid of it. Tough luck. Tough luck. And that, even though this podcast is not live live... It is recorded as live, <laughs> and that is the be- that's the beauty of live, isn't it? You yeah, never it know is. what might happen. You got to go with it. You got to go with it, and you know maybe that kind of ties back to my original question about theatre. Does the liveness of it really speak to you? Yeah, and I just think I, I like immediate responses. I like truthful responses, and I think theatre gives you that. I think you don't have time to ponder over it. It either hits you, and in that moment, everybody's sat in a space, everybody's sat in that audience, and we're all feeling something together collaboratively, and that's magic. Mm. And I think it's magic. Yeah. Um, and and from a writer's perspective, yeah, I just I felt a bit more liberated when I was trying to write for 
uh, theatre. I didn't, even though of course there's rules, um, I say that in connotations, rules um, that are there to be broken, but I felt like I, I had more freedom and I wasn't as petrified. Mm. <laughs> I don't know why, maybe it's just because I hadn't written anything before and I felt bogged down kind of when I looked at writing for television um, or writing a film at least, and I was a, with the format and the structure and I, that kind of was too overbearing. So I thought, okay, and also as an actress, I'd, I'd read more play scripts. And I think that maybe that made me feel a little bit more comfortable. Did you not feel like you needed to have structure when it came to writing plays? No, because I think <laughs> I went into it very naively. Right. <laughs> so um, and me, Hannah and Adam had like a massive conversation uh, about that. Um, I think I write from a very heightened performance uh, place when I'm initially writing an idea for a play. Um, and I really just rely on gut instinct. Mm. Um, so when you say heightened, can you be more specific? <laughs> Everything's like... <laughs> are we talking about under the influence or are we talking about... <laughs> ne- never under the influence. Well, not never, but most of the time. Not, no, not me heightened. But I think I'm just... I'm kind of imagining, um, even if it's not me doing it, I all automatically have someone in my head that they're stood there and they're like giving it big guns. Right. So that's where my writing's coming from, from the from the start. I would say very much when I first started out, it was like, yeah, explosions on a page and it was like chaos. So, um, by, so by a person <laughs> there that you're... Are you saying you have like a writer alter ego? I think that's like, maybe. Like a Sasha Fierce. Yeah, I think I writes. am a bit like that. <laughs> I think I have like maybe a split personality. I love that. I love um, that. But yeah. Uh, so how did it start? Writing. Yeah, writing, acting, theatre in general. Like where, where did the journey originate? I think acting started from a young age, as in like three. I went to a local dance school in Blackpool trained them my whole life till I was 16, mm-hmm. like five nights a week. Um, wow. Yeah. And I, what dance styles did you study while you were there? Ballet, tap, modern, jazz. Yes, all the good everything, stuff. Everything, yeah. <laughs> um, and I did like my lambda and stuff mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. through that. I, I remember everybody, I very much wanted to be a dancer. I very <laughs> much wanted to be a dancer. And um, everybody in my dance school would be like, she's going to be the actress, she's going to be the actress because nobody else liked doing monologues. Right. So I would like whip out a monologue um, at every show. So they were like, she's going to be the actress. And I think if someone tells me I'm going to be something, mm. I want to be the other thing. Right. So you were like, I'm going to be a dancer. I'm going to be a dancer. So I did everything in my mind basically to like give myself the best technique possible. Yeah. So at age 16. Isn't it funny how when we were growing up, there was always this thing of like, it's either or. Yeah. It's not, oh, She's a really good dancer and she can also act, so maybe she'll do both. I feel it's, like it's so different now, though. It's so different. We don't pigeonhole people as much anymore, which is brilliant. Mm. But at the time, it was like either or. Yeah. And if you're like, if I want to dance around in feathers and be a showgirl in like a cute little gold costume, then that means I can't be a serious actress. Mm. And that definitely stuck with me as I got into my older years. Mm. Um, I auditioned when I was 16 for, you. some people call it stage school, because it's um, it wasn't like your traditional Mount View art side, it was more like your Lanes, Bird, right. Um, what, what do you think are the, the major differences between those two sort of subsets of stage schools? I think the way the industry looks at them are very different. I think my personal opinion on them is 
it very much doesn't matter really where you train mm. it's kind of what you put in you get back out yeah um, some people have had some people have a great experience of drama school for me personally I, I did have a great experience and I feel very lucky to say that having spoke to friends and especially in like recent years even in Manchester like looking what's gone on at the drama school scene mm-hmm. here and how people have had you know horrific experiences yeah so I feel very lucky that I had yeah a, a wonderful and if, if it wasn't for Italia Conte I I mean you don't know where you'd be no I don't because they so yeah I auditioned at 16 I got into thank god got into a few places but my mum and dad are from a very much a working class background and they sat me down and said there's not a chance in hell you are going unless you get a full scholarship including like maintenance as well that's that's a lot of pressure isn't it (laughs) it is I think well now as I've gotten older I've realized how much I think that's become me and my Mm. outlook on life in general as I've gotten older because I think I very much have that attitude and I have to fix everything and Um, what what do your parents do my dad uh, does advertising okay yeah and my mum works in a jewellery shop wow um, yeah. okay so, so they maybe have creative spirits as well then right yeah maybe like now as I've gotten older mm. I actually see a lot of myself and my dad yeah um and my dad's really you know he's super clever and that's mm. not to big myself up but he's super <laughs> clever and I feel like sometimes um he won't mind me saying this I feel like there's so many he's a really happy person and that's what matters most but there's so much more like I could see him doing right but like he's you know he's he's going into his 60s now and he would say no I'm not bothered about doing any of that but I'm like no you know you can see it in someone yeah you know it is kind of a choice isn't it sometimes between sort of happiness and success and and there's a sacrifice that comes between them and I I think it's only in the last like two years I've even realize like what sacrifices mm-hmm. have come with that um and what sacrifices have come with that I think I went you know I went to drama school at 16 I turned 17 in the September mm-hmm. again so I got a full scholarship so that pressure that was on you know to perform because there was people in my year I think there was 10 of us on full scholarships mm. um, and back then it wasn't there was no degree courses at mm-hmm. Tally Conti it was diploma so those scholarships were means tested but also talent based so it was a point system like when you went to the recall audition it was based on what people saw in that audition and whether they thought that a business could be made out of you after the three years that you were there and those people got the scholarships so then I looking back I treated I loved drama school but I took it so seriously and I took myself so seriously and you know ballet started at eight I was in there at half six and everybody who knows me, wow. yeah, and who and who who I live with now, my flatmate, she's an acrobat, who we went to Conti together, they say to me now, like, you are a different person, like, compared to when... Because <laughs> you're a lot more chill than you were then. I'm a lot more relaxed, like, mm. I think I've just kind of, you know, kind of started to trust in myself a little bit, mm. bit more in my abilities, whereas before, you know, if someone didn't think I was the best dancer then that hurt my feelings because I had to be the best in my head. Mm. That comes at a price. And I think there is, you know, I I was a scholarship kid as well at at drama school. I say kid, but I went when I was older. So, yeah, wasn't the youngest on the course. But there is that pressure there of like, okay, well, my teachers, the school in general, they want to get banged for their book here. They want to get their money's worth out of me. They want to look at me and go, oh yeah, we made the right decision letting you go here ostensibly for free. Um, So there is that pressure of like, I have to be, you know, 
exceptional Mm -hmm. in order to feel like I'm earning my place here. And, you know, in retrospect, I look back at that and the school and the teachers probably weren't thinking Definitely that. not. <laughs> yeah, they just want you to be there and, and, and enjoying it. And, yeah. and and also, like, drama school and stage school is a space to make mistakes and learn. Mm-hmm. And now I look back, every time I got up to sing, I wanted it to be perfect. Yeah. Instead of just being like, actually, like, now I teach singing and dance to children. And I'm like, make mistakes, like, crap, yeah. I don't care. Like, that. these are the times that you should be free, you should feel mm. free. And I think... That's where, like, you know, when you're from, like, lower socioeconomic background and you you are used to fighting all the time. Like, I always got taught when I was younger, like, you have to bang down doors till someone answers. Like, yeah. you must keep you must keep powering through. Like, don't let anybody tell you no. It's going to be harder for you, you know. Like, you're not going to have money to fall back on. And I think all them things you take mm. into your adult years and you very much say, well, I'm not going to... My life's not going to be like that. I'm going to rewrite my story. I'm going to... And it... And as cliche as those statements sound, it's true because mm. I've, I know because I feel like I've lived that since I've, yeah. you know, graduated from drama school. But there is a tension, I think, that comes with that, you know, that you carry around is. with yeah. you of like, I've got to rewrite my story and I've got to be the first one in my family to do this or this or this. But actually it's... all those things are the things that, you know, they don't define you, but they make you a big part of who you are. And now I think for so long I resisted them. Mm. For, it's funny, isn't it? Because for so long I was like, I'm, I'll be the one in my year that like moved out of Blackpool and did it. And now like I love Blackpool and like I always I'm like back there every other weekend. My sister's had a baby, yeah, um, and well she's three now. She's not a baby anymore. And I'm always back there, and it's all the things I'm proud of. Yeah, everything that I felt like I resisted when I was younger and wanted to be so mm. much more than if, if that if, you know, as people say. Like now I feel yeah that all the things that I've embraced yeah. and actually it's like my superpower. You know, it's part of what makes you you yeah, I suppose, what, what makes it? you tick yeah so do you feel like you've managed to kind of bring Blackpool and your experience of growing up into your work in the way that you've wanted to yeah I think I'd like I'd hope so mm. I feel like I hope that people um if they read my work they can very much see that it's mm. Lawrence writing so of course I saw Dear Little Lars at the Fringe, which was your one woman show that you took up there um, just this year. Um, <laughs> I know, it feels like 10 years ago. <laughs> it actually, it does for me as well. It's crazy it's so how much. in October. I know, it's, yeah. In some ways it feels like this year has gone incredibly fast. And then in other ways it's like, wow, I feel like I've lived a lifetime yeah, since I went to the Fringe. Who am I? <laughs> <laughs> and I saw so many shows at the Fringe. I think, oh God, we saw 10 in total. Um, and I was really happy that we we managed to make it to to yours because it's such an impassioned performance, and Thank it's you. it's it's so hard to kind of um, just to cut through at the fringe, isn't it? Yeah, you know? definitely. Especially when you're in a space that is a bit more sort of off the yeah, beaten track, and maybe not like the main hub of yeah. it all, you know. So, how did you find that experience? I think I went into the fringe very naive in terms of... I've I think never, we all do. Yeah, like, <laughs> but I think that was a blessing, actually. Mm. Um, I've never been to the fringe before as a punter um, and, yeah, never been as a creative. Um, wow, so you'd never been as a punter before? So you had no idea? No idea. Wow. And everyone kept saying, it's so intense. And I was like, no, shut <laughs> up. Like, how intense can it be? I was like, I've done musical theatre for years. That's intense. And I was like, it's a different intense. And... Mm-hmm. and yeah, I mean, I soon learned a lesson in that. <laughs> Don't snub. <laughs> um, because it was so intense. And I think, obviously, I had a, I had a really different experience than maybe to, like, um, a few people who were taking their shows up 
they're themselves solely. Yeah. You know, I was very lucky in terms of I had Izzy Paris Productions who, you know, financed the show mm-hmm. and produced it, which Wow. Yeah. That makes a huge difference. It makes a massive, massive, I mean, yeah. it wouldn't, I think, I think for me, it was a weird experience because I never set out to do The Fringe. So when the show came about, um, I'd written like a Burn Bright commission. I think ah. you, you've acted in a piece for Burn Bright 4. Uh, did I write something for them? I feel like you did. I performed something for I've them, I've definitely I seen remember. you on the performing. Yeah, I had yeah, to yeah. watch like a, a video before we did our writing for that one to yeah. see what they were like. How it they was... Um, Zoe Iqbal wrote a, a little short play yeah, called so that's what they did, like a highlight on Northern yeah. um, playwrights. Oh, it's it's fantastic what they're doing, Burn yeah. Bright, isn't it? So you've been commissioned by Burn Bright. To write was like it a, to write a short? Yeah, to write like a five minute piece, and you performed. I performed it, mm. and it was about like what you would what you wish you'd said, uh, and what you basically would say now, mm-hmm. uh, what you could have said at the time. So the story kind of started with me being followed on the way home from a date, and it was kind of like that was wow. what it was. The piece by was about. the date. Or no, no, by somebody someone else. Someone else, yeah. okay, good. <laughs> Just to clarify. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I wrote the little laws, and a guy called Charlie Palmer, big up Charlie Palmer, because I don't think I'd be writing probably if it wasn't for him, um, he is a television director, and uh, I met him as an actress, went for a coffee with him, and thinking... Again, naively, that's the story of my life. Thinking naively that I was like, I'm an actor, like, and we, we he'd seen me in a play mm. in London, and yeah, I thought we were going to talk about acting, and we yeah. ended up getting talking. He was like, do you write? And I said, no. And But we, I was telling him about all these ideas and, like, my fascination with postpartum psychosis, which mm-hmm. is what one of the plays I've written is about. Okay. And he was like, you should write. Like, I think you've got great ideas. And I was like, no, not a chance. Like, it's just... <laughs> it's not in me and he was like it definitely is and it's was- so funny isn't it because I think so many of us walk walk around thinking that's that we what couldn't- other people do yeah exactly I mean people always ask me you know because obviously I'm a writer too whether like I studied writing or at uni yeah. or whatever and, and the ironic thing is I did a me- media and sociology course at, at Goldsmiths and there was I think it was in the final year a script writing module that right. I could have taken as part of the media course and I did not take it my, <laughs> like one of my friends was doing it and I was like bloody hell Grace that sounds hard good luck yeah, yeah not for me <laughs> never crossed my mind that I could do something like that because it does feel like such a mammoth proposition doesn't it when you're first starting even out even the name like even writer it's like it's like that's what other people do or people like writers don't look like me and that, mm. that sounds so silly to say out loud but that is definitely how I felt like when he made when he said that yeah um so when do you think you started to kind of own that word that title for yourself I think maybe after I'd met him and we were you know it was during lock it was just after, it was just before lockdown so then during lockdown we like did like three zoom calls a week and he would read my ideas wow. yeah He's honestly... This guy's incredible. I can't believe he's he, given you know so funny? much of his time. Yeah, and I'm meeting him tomorrow, actually, in mm. London for a, a drink, which will be really nice. I've not seen him in ages. Yeah. But to make this story short before I make it long-winded, <laughs> um, yeah, so he gave me so much of his time over lockdown. Um, I'd written this film, Love Mum, the screenplay. It was my first thing I'd written. And then I hated it. Was it a full length? It was a full length. Wow, that's ambitious because yeah. what I was thinking about before Mental. was how, you know, the, the mammoth proposition of, of writing a, a script. 
but like you know this this idea of it being like a muscle that you stretch and so maybe you write a 10 minute short film and then you write a 20 minute play and then you know you keep building on that until eventually you can write an hour and then you're like oh you know I've written a full-length play and then maybe you write a book um but you just straight in there oh yeah you should send me during lockdown I was on that East Anglia University course it was like free screenwriting course at me I was signing up to everything on so I was like do you know what I've got nothing to lose I don't have a I don't have a clue what I'm doing Mm. and I had this guy who who I actually didn't know much about like in terms of I knew that he was television director because um we'd worked together um after that but I didn't know that he did like the BAFTA like screenwriting stuff and if I had I would have never I wouldn't we wouldn't I would have been worried yeah you know I would have been second guessing myself but because we just got on as two human beings which is how it should be Mm. um it made it so much better so basically after that I changed the whole idea and decided to write Baby Nun so Mm. he was like no worries that's fine so what's Baby Nun tell us about the premise of Baby Nun Baby Nun XO is a play about postpartum psychosis and motherhood and mm-hmm. how, whether we have one or whether we don't, how we're all connected to it. And for people who don't know what postpartum psychosis is, it's a mental illness that occurs after someone has had a baby mm-hmm. and that can occur with hallucinations, delusions, intrusive thoughts. And I ended up working with uh, APP, the charity, for over like a year and a half during lockdown. Mm-hmm. And again, kind of when I was writing the film, got in touch with them through Charlie. Yeah. And we kind of all worked together, the three of us, APP, me and Charlie, like on this film. I mean, I was writing it, but yeah. they were very much giving me feedback. Um, and is postpartum psychosis something that is uh, simply a mental uh, illness or is it something, is there some, something physical happening that's been triggered by a huge release of hormones yeah, it's, and the physical def- trauma? Yeah, they, they, they've got scientific evidence basically to say that from emergency C-sections, a lot of the women who have had emergency C-sections are more prone to postpartum psychosis because of the physical trauma yeah. um, of that and because of the unexpected trauma of that. You know, some people, uh, you know, they don't know uh, yeah. that they're going to have a C-section, obviously. Uh, now I'd say most of them. Yeah, exactly. I've, I've got a couple of friends that had a baby uh, about a year and a half ago, and they were telling me very recently that the C-section was not planned and it happened so quickly. Like one minute, you know, yeah. she was in labour having a natural birth, and the next minute she was ripped out of there and into theatre. And and how the body and the mind has to play catch up to that, yeah. and you know, and that can trigger something in mm. in the mind. Um, and again, there's still so much research that needs to be done on it. Uh, but yeah, I decided to write that as a play. And then randomly, Charlie called me like maybe a year later and was like, I'm working with a casting director who's Susie Paris. His daughter is looking for uh, new ideas um, for her company, Bomb Factory, which kind of champion uh, female writers. And he said, can I send them baby nun? And I said, yeah, sure. But at this point, I'd already entered it for the Screenplay Award for Sky and Box of Tricks. So I was like, I'm actually um, hoping that I will work on that with Box of Tricks. Um, But yeah, definitely send it off and see what she thinks. And then she was like, I really like it. Have you got anything else that you can show me? And I said, I'm doing Burn Bright. This Mm. is a ticketed event online if you want to watch. She watched like the five minute piece of Dear Little Loz and said, it would be great if you could develop it into a one woman show. Um, and at the time, again, you know, I wasn't getting paid, um, yeah. but I had nothing to lose because I was writing for the joy of writing, not thinking about really, because to me, nothing was going to come of it anyway, because I was like, you know, like we spoke about before, I'm not a writer, like these things don't happen, etc. Mm-hmm. And then she said, I'm looking to debut my company, Edinburgh Fringe. 
I want to take the show to Edinburgh Fringe. So again, I never set out to take it to Edinburgh yeah. Fringe, you know what I mean? So I think a lot of, going back to the Fringe question, I think mm. a lot of people at the Fringe are like, this is it, this is going to... Change me, my life. But it was, yeah, <laughs> this is it, this is going to change my life. But for me, that that was not what it was going to be because I'd never dreamt... I'm not someone who had been like... I've been to the fringe lows and I love it or I've dreamt of going to the fringe and there's mm. nothing wrong with that and I'm not saying this in a derogatory way mm. but that just was never yeah that was never something I'd thought about so when she said it, it naively I was like yeah sure what have I got to lose <laughs> like you know I'll keep writing the play and like to keep sending you the drafts and I did and I just kept writing in between my jobs and sent it and I went down to London did like a read through um and yeah, and then slowly but surely we started, you know, we had to have like a really honest in-depth chat about like financial situations, mm-hmm. something I've never had to do before. Obviously like in acting, you know, your agent very much deals with yeah. those contracts and you're not trying to negotiate and you're not saying, well, actually my rent's this. Yeah. And I can't afford that and I need food. And, yeah. and at first, I, you know, I felt, um, you know, uncomfortable to have those conversations. And I actually mm. remember reaching out to the uh, Laurie, who's my was my pen pal partner who bought tricks put me in touch with right because she was so she, for those of you who don't know pen pals is um a scheme that box of tricks organized and i think god they might be in like fourth or fifth, fifth yeah, cohort maybe, yeah. by now yeah and it's where um writers kind of come together and box of tricks match two writers together that have probably never met before and they spend, I think it's about six months yeah. working on their individual plays and kind of using each other as a support system. And uh, yeah, I I did pen pals and really enjoyed it. I got a lot out of it. And, you know, a friend more than anything else. Me too. Else. I like so. voice note Laurie every other day. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, she really helped me. You know, yeah. she was really good. At, and obviously she's uh, a lot more experienced than me as a writer, I would say. Um, and we just had open conversations and she said, you know, you need to go in and and be really honest because as well I think we don't talk enough about in this industry that other people are willing to listen actually but a lot of us just presume that other people are in the same position as us you know Mm -hmm. if if I'm in a shop I used to work on a makeup counter and if I was trying to sell someone makeup if it came up to past 50 quid I'd be like don't worry about that I'll put a free sample in and actually I just presume no one could afford anything but actually (laughs) people could afford another foundation do you know what I mean I think what's so interesting about our industry and what's so important like I feel like as writers our only real weapon against people doing us over is having conversations with each other about what's really going on because everybody assumes and you know writing can be a very isolating you know job because it is just you in the page a lot of the time but you know you'll do writers rooms or you'll connect with people through you know organizations like Box of Tricks and you'll start to sort of get to know people and have more honest conversations with each other and it will lead to the point where like you you find yourself having a network of of writer pals and stuff gets around that network pretty quickly and so when one person gets screwed over who are they going to complain to their other writer friends and it's 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 very interesting to then start having conversations about money and how much different people are getting paid for doing the same job yeah and it's, yeah, it's just so important, I think. Yeah, it is. And, and you know, I went to Izzy and had those really honest conversations and she was completely, you know, was like, yes, let's have these conversations. Like, I need to know exactly, like, what you need, mm-hmm. what we can do, like, what we can't do as well, you yeah. know, it's like about being open in that way. And, yeah, it was just it was just done on that kind of, like, case-by-case basis of, of mm. what 
I needed during that time. And of course, you were taking a show that was just you. Yeah. Black box, literally a box that you were standing on <laughs> um, and kind of minimal sort of like tech and costume and, you know, as stripped down as it can possibly be but, when you're going to the fringe. And obviously it was kind of financed by Izzy. Um, yeah, on a, on a very tight budget. On a very you know, tight yeah. budget, yeah. And I think it's it's so interesting because there are a lot of productions at the Fringe who have a huge amount of money behind them and have already had like loads of marketing in various and ways by the time they... A load of previews. And, a load of yeah. previews and, you know, big theatres and big theatre companies behind them. And, you know, I remember when I went up in 2017 and I had to sofa surf for seven months in order to pay the other four actors Actors. that were involved in my play and to pay the director. And, you know, I did all this fundraising, like fundraised myself to death. So by the time I got to the Fringe, I was so exhausted. I couldn't give... That's the thing, you're shattered by the time you get there. Yeah, and I was in the play as well. So it was... And then you're in this position where you've got to try and cut through all these people that have way more resources it than is, you do it's mental and mm. it's so funny because we're only in October but I almost wish like I knew now and like I wish I know people told me it was going to be intense and tough but you can't you have to see it for yourself you have to be in it don't you you have to learn yeah there and then and you know as much as I am very grateful to have done it will I be rushing back will I <laughs> and and do you know why? Just all the things you've just said. Mm. I loved it. But then again, morally inside of me, I disagreed with so much of what was going on around me. And that's really hard. That's an internal battle where you go, am I selling out? Am I compromising here? What am I doing? And it's like, well, no, I'm not. I'm here. Mm. I've worked hard. I've written the script. I've, you know, I've gone to London. I've done this for free. Like, I've come to Edinburgh. I'm not getting, like, a weekly wage. You know? mm. it, and it's like... No. But isn't that funny that you feel like you have to exploit yourself yeah. in order to feel as if you're not part of the problem? Yeah. But, you, but we're all part of, of the course, problem. Of course we are. And actually exploiting ourselves <laughs> is even more of part of the problem. And it's it's just a madness. And mm. and I think comparing yourself, like com- comparison is a thief of joy, but you, you are down there and you... At first, the first week's going and you're like, yeah, this is good. I've not been to the Fringe before. But then after a week or so, you're you're starting to read reviews and you're seeing other shows. And I'm like, oh my God, that's an epic idea. What a good play. But then I'm also <laughs> looking at a production that's got, you know, the biggest set in the world. Yeah. It's, you know, the lighting is phenomenal. Yeah. Um, it's also had like previews at Soho Theatre. And I'm like, Lauren, why, why are you even, you can't run up against this. You've got to just do your thing that you do. And I feel like I've always been very good at doing that. Just mm. listening to that inner voice and trusting my gut instinct. But did I have moments at the fringe where I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> I remember calling my mum on like the, at the end of the first week and saying, tell me what I'm doing. And she was like, what do you mean? I'd have moved accommodations three times. And I was just like, what am I doing? Just tell me why I'm doing this. Because normally my why is so strong and mm. it was so strong. But once I'd got up there, I had to like reconnect, really reconnect with myself and have a word with myself and say, why are you doing this? Okay, mm. you know why you're doing it. And then the rest is just background noise. So did you feel like your why became stronger as time went went on? when you? Because you, you know, you kind of went, up there with a sort of well why not kind of attitude yeah, right what have I got to lose yeah what have I got to lose and then when you're up there it's so intense and there's so much noise and there's so much going on and it's so hard that then you really have to go okay this has to go 
beyond just why not so why why am I here was there something new that you managed to kind of cling to in amongst all of that I think for me it was very much it's a semi-autobiographical story and I kept reminding myself like this is not just my story this is so many other people's story that have also gone through similar issues to Mm -hmm. this and that is my why like you know, I've got to forget about that. You know, I'm not on the West End. I'm not on Broadway. I'm on a stage in a classroom, basically, with a black box, <laughs> trying to, you know, communicate with people. And that is all I can do. I've got to stop worrying about what they think of me. Do they think this? Does someone think that? Does someone else think this of the story? And I think my why just came back to me. And, like, why Why did I ever start doing acting and writing in the first place? Because I'm fascinated by humans. I want to tell stories. I want someone... I want to tell stories that I didn't hear being told before mm-hmm. and there yeah, I just had to go with that but it was difficult like there was many many tears <laughs> many it's it's brutal it is brutal and I like my own space <laughs> but, <laughs> you but, don't get that no but no so I kept, <laughs> I kept like going to do the show at 12 o'clock I saw a few things and I, be- I was home by five and in bed by six and people were like are you not coming out no no I ain't coming out I can't function <laughs> it's like Blackpool promenade on crack mm. and that's not a bit of me <laughs> there's there is so much going on there and I think you see kind of like two extremes with performers where they either do that thing where they're in bed by like you know <laughs> as you did or they just drink themselves Wild, into a yeah. stupor every night and, and I, it get it. Really... I get it <laughs> and they come into the dressing room the next day and they're hanging and you're like should have a good night <laughs> <laughs> I know this guy kept coming into the changing rooms every day and he was like I've still not washed my shirt and he was like week two and I was like babe get that that's shirt disgusting. washed and that's the other thing you're <laughs> you're you're sharing big dre- dressing rooms with other productions as well aren't you and I was in underbelly when um when we did my show and there must have been about 15 people in there <laughs> of like you know all genders and you know it just didn't matter everyone was like just getting their clothes off in oh, front yeah, of it's everyone a free for all. yeah I think like in the first two days you're like okay like, you can't maybe, be worried about hiding <laughs> yeah there's got to be like some way that I can do this you know in a discreet way and by like day five or six you're like forget it yeah, we've, just... all, we've all got one <laughs> yeah it's nothing you haven't seen before yeah, yeah. no doubt exactly um so what was it like when you started getting your first reviews through how did that feel it felt strange I think to have someone reviewing I've never had a a review on my writing before um I think it feels a little bit different when someone reviews an acting piece or you're in a play um it doesn't feel as personal even though it's you performing I think yeah you know and some reviews really got what I was trying to do others didn't and I think you know, my, especially my default mode, I think, uh, worked a lot on it over the years. My default mode is, you know, to be like, but I was trying to do that. Like, why can't they see that? But your piece isn't for everybody. And I that think, is the yeah. beauty of it. Do you know what I mean? Like, me mm. and you can go and sit side by side and watch a piece and you come out and you feel like it's changed your life. And I can come out and be like, <laughs> what a load of garbage. Yeah. But that's okay. And I think I kept having to, that was again, throughout the whole fringe, kept having to recheck in with myself and go, Lauren, like, this, even though it is about you, so much of it's not about you. Mm. Like, really, do I 
care what Glenn's opinion is? Mm. No. Yeah. But, but but then did I care when I don't know Sandra gave me a five star? Yeah, I did. So you've got to. But then you've got to be like, well, Lauren, that's double standards. Do you know what I mean? But it's it being is. aware of that. Do you it know is. what I mean? It's being aware. Yeah, I think you know the first review I ever had was at the Fringe, and it was two stars in the stage. And I was absolutely gutted for about an hour because the guy who wrote it just didn't get what I was trying to do with it's it. It's frustration more so than anything. At all. You know, he'd, he'd essentially accused me of like plagiarism. But what I was trying to do was like sample different forms of sci-fi. Got like it. do all these little kind of nods to different, um, you know, sci-fi films, TV shows, theatre right, shows, right, right. books. Um, so that the sci-fi geeks in the audience would be like, oh, that's from Logan's yeah, yeah, yeah. That's from, you know, whatever. And he just didn't get that at all. So he gave me two stars and then I sat in the cupboard that I was sleeping oh in. My God. And I and I went through like reviews of playwrights that I really revered. And one of them was Dennis Kelly. Right. And he got two stars in the stage. In fact, the the um the critics in general absolutely like, you know. They hated The Ritual Slaughter of George Mastromus, which is one of my favourite plays. And it was really interesting reading these reviews because I was like, wow, like, this is an amazing play. I think it's an amazing play. And obviously, you know, Dennis Kelly, like, he's not exactly struggling for work these days. (laughs) So what what does any of this mean? And maybe I'll be okay. And then a couple of days later, I got four stars in Broadway Baby. Um, And I read that, that review. And I was like... I'm not sure this person got the play either, even though it's I four think, stars. Even, I so think it's... if the stars are there and then you feel like they got the play, yeah. that feels like I feel like that happened with one of the reviews, and I was like, that's exactly what I was trying to say, and yeah. she really saw that. But when someone doesn't get it, yeah. and you're like, but I thought it was there for you to see. Mm. I thought you could see that, and I think, but again, it all boils down to personal opinion. It does, and I think what what I realized in the end, and I didn't come to this realization myself because I'm not that clever, (laughs) but I was walking home one night and I bumped into a friend of mine, Jack Rook, who also had a show on in Underbelly at the same time. Mm -hmm. And the stage had given him two stars as well. I mean, everybody else gave him like four, five, you know, whatever stars, because it was a fantastic show, incredible. And, um, And he said to me, what we have to remember you and I is that we are not doing this for those pale, male, stale, middle-class critics. Yeah, yeah, We're not doing it for them. We're doing it for the audiences. Are you getting good audiences? And yeah. I was like, yeah. And then I started doing like little videos after the show of like audience responses. responses. And the response from the audience was great. And I was like, this is what it's about. I know, but it's really, you know? you've got to really check in with yourself, like you said, and remind yourself of that. Because, you know, we, a lot of us would be lying if you say you wrote that two star or three star review and you know three star reviews brilliant review you know you can still have a one star review and there'll be something positive in there yeah but you don't you'd be lying if you sat there and go you go oh i remember thinking like some i can't remember what the sentence was exactly but it wasn't like a great a great sentence and i remember thinking is no one going to take me seriously now are Ooh. people are people not gonna like want to work with me as a right and then it's like Lauren, come <laughs> off it. Give yourself a little slap around the face and have a word with yourself because no, like you said, I'm who am I making this for? Mm, and take it from and the someone. stuff that someone else they might like. I'll probably hate you. Yeah, so that's okay. Take it from someone who has, you know, built a writing career five years since getting that two star review in the stage. They don't care. Yeah, 
actually what matters to people is that you did the fringe because I think everybody knows what a slog it is and how yeah just problematic and challenging the whole scene up there is and I think the unfortunate thing is that that scene I think a lot of people in theatre, film and TV, you know, when we talk about The Fringe, everyone's like, oh God, yeah, we're so appalled at how, you know, brutal it is for everyone and how unfair it is for everyone. But I think it's actually really reflective of theatre as a whole. Do you know what I mean? Like people with money get ahead and people that don't really struggle to. It's funny you should say that because I would sum up um, part of the experience. I felt like it was like someone had got a massive torch Mm. on all the things I dislike about the industry and just like shone it in one space (laughs) and gone. And I was like you can't hide from it it's there and it's Mm. right in front of you but at the same time do I think there's something magical about the fringe yeah I do Mm. you know I had a moment when I came out of Angela Barnes's comedy show and I came out and I called my mum and I was like oh my god like there's nowhere else I'd literally rather be right now like that was pure like insanity magic everything Mm. the same as when I saw a manic street creature I was like yes oh my goodness, like, I feel like I've just witnessed, like, something miraculous. And like, I feel privileged to have just watched her mm. get up on stage, um, Mamuna Memon, who, whose show it was. And uh, and so, do I think there's something magical about it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. But, but, but that doesn't undo all the other stuff. And, you know, have some brilliant things come from the fringe. Yeah, so I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, but mm. I think we have... It's complicated, to, We can't turn it? around and go... I got, did this and then that came from the fringe it's like well no what what about all the things that took to get to that point mm. you know and we have to just kind of think about that the bigger picture I think and I think ultimately what you end up getting out of the fringe is never what you expect to get out of the fringe no and I think like the biggest thing for me was that I look back on that and go wow what an achievement that I got a show to the fringe and we got through the 23 shows and I came out alive and I still have a career (laughs) I honestly thought I was like you know, I'm gonna come. I'm gonna have aged fifty years after this because I. Look, when my mum came down, she was like, "Honey, you are not looking good. <laughs> <laughs> like you look bad." And I was like, "And I'm not gonna lie. Like when it was those last five shows, I was counting down the days. I loved being up on that stage. I loved it, but it was crippling. And it yeah. sounds like you're being dramatic because when other people said that to me, well, when other people said that to me, I was like." come off it like how (laughs) like really what how like how intense can it be but you know I mean you just have to put yourself through it to to understand I think yeah because you really do and you know the craziest things happen everyone gets ill you know I remember towards the end of our run the ceiling of the venue literally (laughs) fell in we had like a leap with buckets in the just in the door and I was like cool just mid emotional monologue and we came drip drip we had to do our final show in the cow cafe because there was no venue anymore there was people like doing the fire alarm would go off and they'd finish the show in the street and i was like what is this a show that's crazy what is going on it is fly by the seat of your pants like no other isn't it yeah and i remember thinking on the first few shows it's so silly but i remember thinking like what you know so anxious like i've never you know i've never felt such crippling anxiety Mm. like i felt there um, you know, and even being, I think it's the intensity of just being around everybody leafleting and like this crazy people running down the street dressed as banana, you know. Yeah. And, I, and I was like, this is overwhelming. This is overwhelming. Is this me? You know, and then, even the leafleting, you've really got to know what you're doing when you when you fly her in. But part of me, like Carla, like, I have to be completely honest about. It. Part of me felt embarrassed at times, like mm. embarrassed about how worried I was getting in my own head, being like, 
so say I'd, ha- I'd have like my friend Emma coming down on the Wednesday of the first show. It's like, what if no one comes and it's just Emma and her mum in the audience and Emma and her mum have come all the way from Blackpool and like they really want to support the show. Like, how embarrassing will it look if no one's in the audience and like, will they think I'm crap? And then it's like, Lauren, you have no control over this. I remember my mum and dad calling me saying that and saying, you have no control over this. All you can do, Lauren, is get on that stage, mm-hmm. perform, mm-hmm. do the writing that you've written and do your best. And that sounds such like a obvious piece of advice but I had to start like taking that on board because I was like I cannot drag Mm. people and I won't (laughs) drag them in off the street you know like I can leaflet I can talk honestly and openly about the show but then whoever's in the audience gets you know my best version of that show and yeah it's weird how yeah I felt like my young like kind of auditioning back at drama school (laughs) self where you feel you know, embarrassed to say like, oh, that audience was quiet. And then I was like, why should I be embarrassed? There's 3,000 shows here. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? If I even get two people in, yeah. that's like a victory. That's what I mean, I'm lucky that I didn't have to like, sh- uh, you know, shut a show and not be able to go on, especially like in, in such a kind of ve- the venue that we were in. And, mm. and, now, and now coming out of it, feeling on the other side of it, I just think, can't believe I did it. And like, I'm, yeah, like you said, the biggest thing I've got out of it, like I'm, I knew I was resilient, but I'm more resilient than I ever thought I was. And And you never know who's going to be sat in that audience, even if you do get just one or two people, you know, sometimes. You never know who's going to be sat there. You know, that final show that we did at Cow Cafe, which, I mean, it was just a farce. Like, it was so (laughs) ridiculous. We had, like, this tiny little um, stage that was, like, uh, elevated. And we'd been used to working on a, a stage probably about four times bigger that was completely flat right and we had one of our cast members had I think possibly like dislocated slash sprained his ankle on the cobbles it was in a really bad way that's mad and so we had to wheel him around in an office chair and throughout throughout the whole performance I was just terrified that we were going to wheel him off the stage and into the audience oh my god but this guy came who was a writer and a director and he saw me and he loved the show I don't know why (laughs) and wrote a part for me in a show that he was doing at Vault Festival which was an amazing experience to go and do another festival just as an actor and you know not have to worry about all the stuff I'd have to worry about at the fringe and we sold out every night and it was a fantastic experience and that would have never happened if I hadn't been for the fringe yeah and they do say i mean people said they say at the fringe you never know who's watching and you really do never never know because i had no clue half of the people that were in mm. and it was madness like the amount of you know contacts i uh, came away with people uh, there's um a woman called emily allen uh, she won't mind me saying she used to be the head of a bbc comedy she's now a uh, development at befola pictures she came on like the third show and it was quiet audience and she messaged me on Twitter afterwards and was like, hey, just wanted to say I came to see your show yesterday Um, I loved it and I'd love to have a meeting with you. That's and so we had like nice. a Zoom like on the first week of my friend and she said, yeah, I came and she was like, no one recommended the show to me. I do like this really kind of, she was like, she actually said a bit of a geeky thing and I just circle shows of interest that I like look up in the brochure, I do it every year. And she, she came and yeah, and she loved it. And we're in contact now, like I'm working on a treatment. And, that's great. And, what the, and I said that as if you came to my show. And she was like, yeah, well, that's the beauty of The Fringe. It is. You never know what you're going to happen upon. And I've seen some incredible things at The Fringe that has just been a very last minute, like, oh, should we go see that? Yeah. And it's turned out to be 
Incredible. So you you signed with a new agent recently, didn't you? Was that somebody who came to see you at the Fringe? Yeah, so again, like, didn't know she was in. Mm-hmm. Um, I did, like, a kind of thing. I don't know why I did this. Maybe it's just that thing in my head, you know, that I said, like, I do when I'm, you know, I don't want to be a dancer, so... Uh, I don't want to be an actress, sorry, so I'm going to be a dancer, because other mm-hmm. people said that. I was like, I'm not going to email uh, any agents um, about the Fringe, because I was like, I'm going to just surrender and trust... Um, <laughs> that whatever happens happens and yeah just to be clear like I had an agent before Mm. it was a friend who I was very happy with yeah um but I was also aware of like the sort of work I wanted to be doing um and also like the caliber of people I wanted to be amongst and yeah so I knew that obviously there was going to be other agents up at the fringe Mm -hmm. um but I kind of left it to chance which is something I never do I'm someone who's like email and bang down (laughs) door I was like that's not worked (laughs) so we will take a step back um so yeah uh United came to watch and that's the agency not the the football team (laughs) that would have been a real turn up for the books wouldn't it (laughs) I'm a wag (laughs) um yeah they came to watch and uh got in touch and then by like the that was on the last week of the fringe um and by the week after I'd signed with them which is yeah so worth it even for that (laughs) oh my god yeah and I, I couldn't like I uh, had a few meetings. I went down to London on the Wednesday. I was going on a holiday on the Thursday, and we and I gone back from the fringe on the Sunday. Um, and I remember thinking, like, I'm going on a holiday on Thursday. Like, so I had to go down to London on Wednesday and have some meetings. And then United were one of the people I'd met with. And I, I just remember thinking, like, if I could have said this to, like, Loz, who was at drama school, who went to Conti's, like, mm. she would have just been like, what? <laughs> Which is mad because it's like you know. I don't know it's like you almost become to think that that's like unattainable or mm. they'll never be interested in me and also what what was the plan if not that do you know what I mean like what was not like you must have had a dream yeah that yeah. one day something like this would happen and it's so weird because I felt like when I finally like surrendered a little bit and kind of you know like you said made it about more like what my why was mm. then all the other thing then like the meetings that I thought I'd never have mm. came about it's like, if only I'd done this a while ago, but you have to go through the process. So just going back to the genesis of how all of this began, you met this guy, uh, Charlie, Charlie, who came to see a play of yours, which is so interesting, you know, kind of tying it back to what we were saying about you never know who's in the audience. And I'm trying to kind of picture how this happened. You performed in this play. Where was this play? Tristan Bates. Tristan Bates. And it gone up 53-2 at first, and then it moved to, went to Tristan Bates. And then you came off stage. How did you meet this guy? So I emailed him. Mm. Shock. <laughs> Love an email. So I emailed him and said, you know, I know that you came to see the play. So he'd, you, you knew he'd come to... How did you know he came so to I'd the play? So I'd invited him. You'd invited yeah, him. So done, how did you come across him in the first place? I'd done Monologue Slam, right. which was in London. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd won it. And I saw... I looked who was on the panel. I went back through all the Monologue Slams and basically invited every person who'd ever been on a panel mm-hmm. there. And he was one of them. And he wasn't even on my panel. He was yeah. on a panel one year. But I saw that he was a television director. And I was like, screw it, I'll invite him. Yeah. So having that boldness to just put yourself out there and be like, hey, do you yeah. want to come and see me in something else? Yeah, I think I'm never that arsed about doing that. To be fair. And I like... think that's that's so positive. So then we've got the, the, the hammering the doors down mm. and doing that, but then also knowing when to sort of step Stop, back yeah, and, and breathe and... Yeah, let the universe do its work. Yeah, and just trust that actually, you know, your talent will speak for itself and hopefully someone will, you know, resonate with what you're doing and that... 
that's really difficult to do I think in an industry that at times feels impossible mm. um what's your favorite play oh I don't know if I can choose one can I have one you can, yeah you can choose a couple have a couple okay number one do you know what number I'm gonna go actually this isn't in order I'm gonna say the play that made me want to start writing and that's not like this is not like a big up box of tricks thing um even though they're great um <laughs> was spark plug oh because wow. it's the first play i've ever seen where i was like do you know what maybe maybe i could do that mm. um but say yeah, yeah. date and david judge is and he knows a, that yeah, yeah. <laughs> honestly and, yeah and i guess you know because he's a writer performer as well yeah 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 that's the first time i remember speaking to my friend charlie um who's in manchester an actress and saying like oh my God, I've seen this play, like, and I made her go, and then I went to see it another time. Obsessed fan, am I okay? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so that's, like, the play, I think, that definitely I was like, mate, that's a bit of, mm. that's a bit of me. Um, I did Cloud Nine, Carol Churchill, at um, drama school, and that just holds, like, a really special place in my heart, and, yeah, I love it mm. for so many reasons. Um, mm. So that's one of my favourites. Again the start of things for you yeah and like the first time I felt like someone had taken me seriously as like an actress like mm. one of the the course leaders so that yeah that really special I don't know if it's my favorite play but I think it's you know when you you look back yeah you're like that was wonderful and then I saw a play recently at the national by David Eldridge middle and I loved it mm. like, why did you love it because it was just a, it was a, it, it seemed so simple. It was a, what's it about? It's about a couple, a married couple, and they're in the kitchen, mm. and the the wife kind of wakes up, and he's pottering around making like food in the middle of the night because he's hungry, and she basically tells him that she doesn't want to be with him anymore, and mm. and they've got kids, and he's from a very working class background, and she's would say she's more from a, a more privileged background, and, and so many topics just unfold, and they go back and forth and back and forth, and I and I went on my own. Mm. Um, and Daniel Ryan was in it, phenomenal. And it's just kind of that mundaneness of life that we take for granted, which actually is like everything. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's that it really mundane, is. everyday crap that you like, there's nothing in it, but there's so much in it. And like, yeah. you can do, same, we live together mm-hmm. and, and you do something every day that grates on me. Over <laughs> time, that becomes something. And then that resentment that I then built about <laughs> that. And you saw it in these two people. And so much of it just reminded me of like relationships that we have with friends, with family, and like even in my parents Mm. you know it's not easy like being in a relationship with someone is not easy Mm. and I think especially like in the generation that we live in now everything is very much highlight reel especially when it comes to relationships and I just watching their relationship unfold on stage again like the magic of us everyone in the audience experiencing him you know witnessing for the first time like her her telling him that she don't want to be with him anymore and the battle he went through of like like almost like you know when someone says something you don't want to hear it so you kind of ignore it and just carry on with like your daily tasks and it's like they had to because it was just them two in the kitchen they had to confront like their demons mm. oh it was amazing so yeah I'd say they're, they're yeah. three in that there's a, there's a good three yeah. yeah the magic of the everyday Lauren Nicole Mays you've been fantastic oh, thank, thank you, you so much for coming on the podcast Thanks and best me. of luck with all you do next I'm sure it'll be great I hope so <laughs> What a lovely conversation. 
I've met Lauren several times in work-related settings and was lucky enough to catch her show at the Fringe, but it was just so nice to finally sit down with a brew and get to know her a bit better. Her passion and determination is just so energising and I really do feel like she's one to watch. Also great to have another very honest conversation about Edinburgh Fringe on the podcast. Um, I know about this time of year, a lot of you will be thinking about whether you're going to go as a punter or maybe you're even taking a show up there. If you are doing the latter, best of luck to you and know exactly what you're going through. And a little bit of news before we go. Box of Tricks Creative Jam is back Wednesday the 14th of June at six o'clock at The Yard. It's a workshop exploring creativity, a space for artists of all kinds, whether you're a writer, a visual artist, a musician, a designer, maybe you're a spoken word artist, um, an actor, a dancer. Um, It's really just kind of open to everyone of all art forms so that we can come together and create unique in the moment connections, as well as kind of testing out scratch ideas, um, a riff that needs a lyric. Maybe you've got some choreography that's crying out for a soundtrack or vice versa. Maybe you've got a blank page. Just bring that. It's all about play and it's all about fostering connections and creating surprises and just seeing what you come up with. So feel free to bring along any instruments, bits of kit, scraps of text, um, or even just bring yourself. It's a workshop that's created by the people in the room. So just come with an open mind and there might be chaos, there might be beauty, there might be new projects and relationships born. And if all else fails, there's a bar. Find out more information on Instagram and Twitter. If you enjoyed listening, tell your friends, share on your socials and of course, subscribe. You can follow Box of Tricks on Twitter at B-O-T-T-C and on Instagram at Box of Tricks Theatre. You can find me at Carla M. Sweet on both platforms. That's Carla with a K. And you can follow Lauren on Twitter at Lauren Nicole M-A and Instagram at Lauren Nicole Mays underscore. Thank you for joining us again for the Playmakers podcast. We'll be back with a new episode the week after next. I'll see you then.